This is episode 115 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with Kelly Salmon for part two of my conversation with her. Uh, the first episode was two episodes, or three episodes ago, episode 112, and we talked about all um, her episode, or <laughs> we talked about all the alphabet soup after her name. But in this episode, we're getting into some really interesting different modalities and therapies that can be used for our patients with head and neck cancer. So um, as someone that I don't have very much experience with head and neck cancer, this episode I just think was really cool and just kind of all the latest and greatest technologies that are available now. Um, So I hope you guys really enjoy this. And I could not thank Kelly enough. She is one of our mentors in the MedSLP Collective for all things head and neck cancer, laryngectomy. Uh, She's amazing. So um, I've been getting lots of questions about when we're reopening that. It's December 9th. So um, if you want to go to MetaSLPCollective.com and get on the wait list now and join us December 9th, you can. So hope you all really enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right, so where to next? Sure, sure. So um, as I mentioned, you know, over the years, I have found my niche kind of working with patients diagnosed with head and neck cancer. And that includes everything from the the day of diagnosis and formulation of their treatment plan through all of the stages of survivorship, including end of life. So um, it's been a really amazing experience and an amazing journey for me to work with these individuals. I just have so many memorable patients and people that have taught me so much just about you know perseverance and, and working through incredibly difficult diagnoses and situations. And this patient population, it is challenging, it's not easy, but to me, the best part of working with the, this patient population is that it does force you to think a lot about um, anatomy, it makes you think a lot about physiology, you know, how treatments affect speech and swallowing and overall quality of life. And so although you may get a couple patients that all had their cancer in the same location, all three of them may have different treatment plans. And those treatment plans may impact the severity of their impairments afterwards. So for me, every single patient is a puzzle. <laughs> and they can be tough puzzles to, you know, pick apart, you know, what what's going on here is, is this problem with swallowing an anatomic issue that, you know, they had a surgical resection and they just don't have the same muscle bulk and same configuration of the oral cavity or their pharynx as they did before. Have they been treated with chemo or radiation and and now have a lack of saliva that's really contributing to their swallow problem? Or on the other hand, was their treatment, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago 
And now they're experiencing, you know, some of the unfortunate later effects of their, of their treatment. So, so it really makes you think critically. There's a lot of problem solving and a lot, a lot of interdisciplinary teamwork to manage these patients. So, so it's a tough patient population, but it's challenging. And, and I found that it's absolutely rewarding to work with them. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's growing too. So, Mm -hmm. and um, I think, you know, over the years, I found that there's not one right approach to treating these patients, you know, a lot depends on each individual side effects. So there are patients that I know are going to do great after treatment, we are able to work them through, you know, an exercise based protocol or a bolus driven protocol, and they return to a full oral diet, their peg tube is gone, and I never see them again, they're doing awesome. And then on the flip side, I have patients who, you know, again, had their treatment many years ago. And by the time they come to me, the uh, later effects have really set in. They've got a lot of stiffness and fibrosis and pretty deep down changes in terms of their muscle function and physiology. And unfortunately, I've had patients where, you know, despite all of the tools in my toolbox, I'm not able to really make a, a lasting change on their swallow function. You know, and this has been well documented in the literature, you know, these later uh, radi- late, late radiation associated dysphagia. And unfortunately, you know, in the review of all of the different treatment techniques in terms of exercise protocols and electrical stimulation and manual therapy and, and everything else, that despite all of that, you know, we don't see huge changes in function. What we do see is that patients, you know, report better quality of life after undergoing some of these treatments. But when we do instrumental exams, the physiology doesn't really match, right? So they feel like they're doing better. But unfortunately, all of the treatment that we've attempted hasn't really made any, any changes to the underlying musculature, which is tough. (laughs) And, and, you know, one interesting patient population that I've seen um, kind of increase over the past probably five years for sure, but probably the last five to 10 years is, you know, a lot of these patients who underwent organ preserving treatments, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, primary radiation and chemotherapy, that they've had such significant side effects, later side effects that they end up with kind of a a whole different condition in and of itself known as dysfunctional larynx. So these are patients who essentially, I mean, some of the ENTs I work with, they'll kind of phrase it as they're like a swallowing cripple. They're they're not able to swallow it all or at least swallow safely. You know, these are the patients that are having recurrent pneumonias despite trying therapies or modifying their diet. And some of them, you know, the the extent of the fibrosis affects the entirety of the larynx where they start to have issues with breathing and voicing. And so these patients, I've seen quite a few that have opted to proceed with a uh, salvage uh, total laryngectomy. So they don't have any type of recurrence of their cancer, but their swallow function, their laryngeal function has been so devastated over the years with the progressive changes from their treatment that, you know, they may not have 
any good voice function, they may be experiencing trouble breathing, and they can't eat because they're aspirating so significantly that they have recurrent pneumonias. So I've seen quite a few of those patients that have moved in that direction of, of having a functional laryngectomy to solve those issues. So that's another really interesting yeah. patient population to work with. And for a lot of patients, you know, if it comes down to that question of, you know, well, would you rather be able to speak or would you rather be able to eat? Um, and hands down, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll say, you know, I can deal with not speaking, I, I want to eat. Um, and these patients that have gone through with this surgery, you know, a lot of them, I've known for years, because they've been struggling for years in terms of their eating and their swallowing, and it's just progressively getting worse, but they're holding on to any chance they can get to eat. So they're dealing with these pneumonias, but they don't want to give up eating. And so they do end up having this surgery. And I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, do you feel like you made the right decision? Or would you do it again? And hands down, they'll say, yeah, you know, I wish I did it sooner, because I can breathe easier, you know, I can eat and drink, you know, it's not normal, right? You know, we always talk about that, too, that, you know, swallowing doesn't automatically become easy, just because you had a, a laryngectomy, there are still, you know, swallow issues that happen. But hands down, you know, they can breathe easier, they can eat and drink. And now, you know, there's many options for restoring communicative function after laryngectomy as well. So for a lot of these patients um, that have gone that route, they've found a huge improvement in their quality of life. Well, forgive me for being naive, Kelly, because this is like laryngectomy is not my jam at all. But like, is it is it almost more common for laryngectomies to be elective? Or is it I just don't, you know, like I'm fascinated that it's actually something that people would just choose to do as opposed to the physician being like, this is what we have to do for you. Right, right. So it's, I would call it more elective in these particular cases where someone's function has declined to the point where, again, they can't, they can't safely eat or drink. They're, you know, getting these recurrent pneumonias, you know, they're in the hospital once a month or every two months because they're having these recurrent pneumonias, it's starting to do harm to their lungs, um, you know, it's affecting their breathing and, and respiratory function. So it comes to be kind of a crossroads where listen, either you continue what you're doing, and it'll likely be the end for you at some point. Or, you know, we have this option of, you know, removing the voice box, separating the airway from the from the pharynx, giving you an opportunity to get back to eating and drinking again. So in those cases, for a functional laryngectomy, someone who has the, you know, a significant impact with these late effects of radiation, then then it becomes, or it may become an option for some of them at, at some point in time. But the key here is that these people don't have cancer, right? So they don't have any kind of recurrence saying that you have to have a, a laryngectomy in order to, you know, get get you clear of this, this cancer. But for individuals, you know, diagnosed with later stage laryngeal or hypopharyngeal cancers, then it, it, you know, it may not, it may be less of an option. It's not, not so much elective. If you have significant cancer of the, the larynx, then the option is often for total laryngectomy to manage that particular disease process. So in those cases, it's less elective. It's more like this, this is what we have to do if, if you want to have a good chance at survival. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. 
What's next with laryngectomies? So, you know, I get a lot of questions about managing patients who've had a total laryngectomy because, you know, a lot of times it's not something that you see often unless you, you know, work in a large academic medical center where they're doing a lot of laryngectomy surgeries. So if you're working in a rural setting or you're, you're not close to one of these institutions, you may only see a total laryngectomy once or twice a year, or maybe even less often than that. So people often ask, you know, how, how can I learn more about this particular patient population? Or, you know, how can I get enough knowledge that if, if this type of patient was admitted to my facility or walked through my door, um, I could at least get them started or at least have some semblance of, you know, knowing how to answer some of their questions. You know, and for me, it was not always an area of interest for me, or it was not always something I felt comfortable with, even for the, I've worked for this one particular institution for 13 years, and it wasn't until probably about seven or eight years ago that I started taking an interest in, you know, working with this particular patient population, because it's, it's complicated, right? But there are a lot of, you know, really good resources out there in terms of, you know, in-person courses that you can attend. There's some great online information available for people. There's training courses, there's clinical specialists that are employed by, you know, the two big institutions that make the majority of laryngectomy supplies. They'll come out to your facility, they'll come to you, they'll work with you. You know, if you have a difficult patient that you aren't sure what to do with, you can call them, they'll come and work with you hands on to kind of get you up and running. So there's a lot of really great opportunities out there to kind of start working with that particular patient population. It, you know, it gets a little more challenging when you start talking about, you know, getting into things like completing, you know, voice prosthesis changes. It's, it's something you have to want to do, right? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not something that someone can just say, oh, we want you to start doing voice prosthesis changes tomorrow. I have colleagues who are very interested in that and others who say, you know what, I'd rather not you know, deal with, with someone's airway like that. And that's cool, right? Um, but there's, there's a lot of opportunities to you know, learn about that. And w- one of the biggest things that I love about you know, working with these patients and particularly you know, with managing the voice prostheses is that you know, these patients in the process of, of going through this surgical change, you know, there's a lot of changes that happen with total laryngectomy, but certainly the loss of voice you know, also ends up being kind of a loss of identity for a lot of patients as well. Even if a patient will say, oh, I didn't talk much before, it's not a big deal. You know, deep down, it, it really it really is a big deal for them, you know. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine how it wouldn't be. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to give a patient an opportunity to, you know, restore the voice in some way um, is incredibly meaningful. And, you know, for me, just like some of these head and neck patients in terms of their overall conditions being complicated, managing a voice prosthesis can be incredibly complicated as well. So there's a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of trial and error, a lot of you know, critical thinking to try to figure out what, what's the problem here. It's not always an easy, you know, smooth type of thing. So I love that because it's the critical thinking piece and it keeps me on my toes and I have to constantly 
think about options, think about what's out there. And I have to, you know, consult the experts sometimes. I don't have all the answers. So um, it's, it's one of those things that definitely makes you keep learning and keep thinking and, and doing the best you can to help these, these patients. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any specific like training courses for laryngectomies that you think that you can think of, or just, I mean, honestly, reaching out to the companies, things like that? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple great, you know, in-person type seminars that are, that are offered. You know, I, I live here on the East coast. I'm lucky enough to kind of be within reach of several big metropolitan areas, but I I will say, you know, down at a greater Baltimore medical center, which is outside of Baltimore and Towson, Maryland, they actually run quite a few really, really great head and neck focused courses during the year. They run a course on laryngectomy specifically, and they have a surgeon who comes in and they do um, a laryngectomy procedure on a cadaver. And they also bring in patients and give the attendees an opportunity to have some hands-on observation or hands-on practice with doing voice prosthesis changes. So they give a really great hands-on course there. I know that um, MD Anderson offers some laryngectomy focused courses as well. And then there's a great course that every other year it alternates between Stanford University in California and Massachusetts Eye and Ear in Boston. And the topics are all, you know, laryngectomy related across the board from, you know, alaryngeal communication to surgical reconstructions and complications, as well as, you know, managing voice prostheses as well. And then we talked a little bit about the two companies. You have Atos and InHealth as your two main companies in the laryngectomy market in terms of supplies and voice prostheses. Um, and they often host training courses. InHealth has the, the Blom training course, and, and they run that a couple times a year. I think that's in Indianapolis in Indiana, um, where you can attend and have the opportunity to learn more and have some hands-on practice there. I know that ATOS will often partner with different clinics around the country, and sometimes they'll run a voice prosthesis clinic where patients come in. For the patients, it's awesome because they get a free prosthesis because they cost a lot of money. So you'll have people lining up around the corner to get a free prosthesis change. But for you as the clinician, it gives you an opportunity, again, to work hands-on with a patient and you know, have the opportunity to see if this is something you're really interested in or kind of see how it's done. So there are a lot of opportunities for um, hands-on practice. Um, it's just kind of seeking them out and finding them. And then both ATOS and InHealth do offer webinars on a fairly regular basis, maybe quarterly, that kind of focus on topics related to alaryngeal communication, managing voice prostheses and, and things like that. So there are quite a few opportunities out there to kind of brush up on that knowledge or, or to get more in-depth knowledge if it's if it's something you want to work with. Awesome. Thank you, Kelly. I think I, I think of like four of you guys that I know like really specialize in it. And I'm always fascinated. Like, how did you, you know, we all go down our own little rabbit holes, but like, where do you even find that kind of training? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. thank you. What's next? Mo- multimodality approach. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm also passionate about when it comes to treating dysphagia across the board, you know, not just in head and neck, but 
kind of incorporating many different approaches, many different modalities to treatment. You know, when we talk about modalities, you know, the first one that tends to pop up for most people is, you know, using e-stem or electrical stimulation to treat dysphagia. And for me, when I moved across the country for that job in California back in 2004, the hospital system that I worked for out there was kind of an early adopter of using NMES to treat dysphagia. So one of the first things they did was send me to a training course in the middle of July in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it was awesome. <laughs> it was hot as heck. Uh, I've never experienced heat like that in my entire life, but but it was my first kind of exposure to you know using something so foreign to us as as speech pathologists at the time. I mean, at the time. It had only been approved or been on the market for about two years, so it was very new. And I was a new clinician. I think I had maybe two years under my belt at that point. So I was definitely overwhelmed, and I I know that I didn't fully understand most of it at the time. But, you know, I completed the training, and I started using it with some of my patients. And I think, you know, the biggest thing when it comes to any modality is patient selection, you know, it's not going to be the right thing for every patient that you see. Um, But there are certain patients that are going to be good candidates. And I think over the years, you know, what I've learned in terms of e-STEM specifically is that, you know, it's definitely not a magic pill. It doesn't fix everyone's dysphagia. And I think that was a lot of the initial pushback at the very beginning is that that was how it may have been advertised a little bit. So, you know, over the years, my approach has kind of changed quite a bit. I know you've had a couple of great speakers come on and talk about, you know, principles of e-STEM and um, how it might be able to help our patients. And so for me, my, my approach has certainly evolved over the years. I've been trained in, you know, three of the approaches. I've been trained in vital STEM and AMP care and the Guardian protocol as well. So what I tell people, you know, everybody wants to know, you know, which one is the best. And, you know, my honest answer is, you know, I don't think there's one right protocol or wrong protocol. I think that, you know, at this point in time, there's a lot more that we as clinicians can control when it comes to ESTEM. And, you know, we could probably talk all day about parameters and placements of electrodes and things like that. But it really comes down to, having the background information that we need to, to treat our patients best. So we, we need that physiologic information. We need to have our instrumental swallow studies, our fees and video fluoroscopy. And I love doing both of those. You know, I know we've talked a lot about treatment today, but I love, you know, getting to the bottom of what's causing the symptoms that a patient is presenting with. And if you or your facility are interested in a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, please check out our wonderful sponsor, EndoHD, that's N-D-O-H-D, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. They have an easy-to-operate fees unit with fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fees study review, and a customizable fees report template is provided. So please contact them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. So, you know, really having the opportunity to put the pieces of the puzzle together 
like we were talking about earlier, finding out what those impairments are and really thinking about the best approach. So, you know, sometimes NMES will help if it's an issue of the patient having weak musculature. If it's an issue of stiffness where a patient has a lot of fibrosis that's limiting their range of motion, or they have significant edema, lymphedema, external or internal, you know, I might not be thinking e-stem right off the bat. I may be thinking more along the lines of doing manual therapy, you know, myofascial release or doing lymphedema therapy to address the swelling. So, you know, I think when it comes to modalities, it's a lot of critical thinking and problem solving that knowing what's out there, knowing when to use it, you know, being selective, I think is the key. So my approaches to managing my patient's dysphagia often includes multiple modalities. So, you know, head and neck, they may have issues of stiffness. And so I may be doing myofascial release before, you know, considering some of the other options. My lymphedema patients, I'm definitely doing my manual lymphatic drainage and compression and everything else to manage that first and foremost, because that's the biggest impairment that's limiting what they can do. So yeah, so I think, you know, just knowing what the different approaches are and, and knowing when to use them and what to use them for um, is probably the most important thing to consider. I love what you said there, because I think, like you said, so many people are like, what's the best approach? And it greatly varies depending on what population you're seeing. You know, I think the population I see is significantly different from the population you see. So it's like, well, what I think would be the best for my people is not going to be the best for your people. So yeah, I think we kind of got to take some steps back sometimes and ask those foundational questions before we're like, this is the best ever. And I think, um, you know, what you were saying before about there's, you know, certain things we do in our field that maybe we could use a little more training or a little more intensive uh, work. And I, I certainly think that, you know, ESTEM is one of them because the, there were protocols established early on and it was just, you know, everything was already decided. And the only thing that you did as the clinician was just adjusted the intensity. But now we're learning more from our colleagues in PT particularly that there are things that we can manipulate to match our patient's presentation. And so I might have different parameters for my electrical stimulation for head and neck cancer patient than I do for someone with an acute stroke or which might also be different than someone with Parkinson's or a progressive neurologic disease. So what I'm, what I've learned over the years is that, you know, there's a lot that I definitely did not know when I first started that now I'm thinking about and saying, you know what, you know, I don't, I wouldn't use this particular approach with this patient. I would choose something else entirely, or I'm going to change the parameters or manipulate the parameters here to match my patient's presentation. And I think that's, that's a tough thing, you know, to get a good handle on, to get a good grasp on, you know, just like it takes a really long time to really understand all of the cranial nerves and really understand all of the musculature involved in speech and swallowing. You know, the same thing happens with modalities, you know, a lot of it just takes a lot of time, a lot of practice, trial and error, a lot of research to, to fully understand it. So I think that's, yeah. that's the, uh, that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, using our brains that are so wonderful and actually implying some critical thinking is a lot harder than just the set it and forget it method. But 
yeah, it's it's so crucial. And, you know, I think that's kind of what separates, I don't mean to sound bad when I say this, but good clinicians from bad clinicians is where my brain's going at this point. But it's like, are you a good, good clinician in that you're doing your homework, you're doing your research, you know how to think critically about these patients, and you're going to get the best outcomes for them. You know, and then we have clinicians that are discouraged because they just set it and forget it and don't see good outcomes. But it's like, because you may not be using, like you said, the right parameters, the right intensity for this specific population. So yeah, there's a lot more critical thinking involved than just the set it and forget it method. So yeah, and I, you know, I think the best thing that people can do is just, you know, keep asking questions, right? Reach out to, reach out to a mentor or, you know, reach out to someone that you know, that might have a better handle than you. That's how I learned, you know, I asked a lot of questions and and not just questions of my you know, speech colleagues, but also my colleagues in PT, right? You know, I, I always tell the story that, you know, I'm a speech pathologist trapped in a PT's body, or maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's the other way around, but PT yeah. trapped in a speech pathologist body. Yeah. When I initially was starting out as an undergrad, I was in the program to become a physical therapist. And that was my first goal in terms of career. Um, I was always an athlete and at first wanted to be a sports medicine physician and realized I'd be like 32 by the time I finished school. So I, um, I thought, you know, well, physical therapists work with athletes and they help rehabilitate injuries. So that would be a great profession to be part of. And so I really enjoyed learning about all of the anatomy and the physiology and how the body works. And then I was doing volunteer work to be a PT and in the bed next to our patients was a speech pathologist working with a patient on just communicating yes and no. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is so cool. <laughs> it, it, changed, yeah, yeah. it changed my perspective yeah. altogether. But you know, the point of my story is that sometimes we have to take a different mindset, grab some of the principles from our colleagues who are exercising and engaging their patients in exercise all the time and see what they have to say about things like challenging a patient, using resistance to strengthen muscles, or how do we make sure that the exercise that we're prescribing our patients is enough? Is, is it challenging enough to make a difference? So drawing upon the knowledge of our colleagues um, in other disciplines can also, you know, really push us in, in a different direction. And, and sometimes it's the difference between a patient making progress and, and not. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kelly. Yeah, you got it. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Good. Hopefully it's enough material. <laughs> it's a, plenty of material. Do you have any, any final thoughts, anything you'd like to add? I would just say, as a clinician, just remember that you're always going to continue to grow. You can't say it enough that you don't know what you don't know. Even though I've been here doing this job for 17 years, I... I'm still excited to learn more and more about all of these different things that our patients are going through and, and, and just the collaboration. I think that's another big piece. We don't have to be all by ourselves. Like there's lots of other clinicians that we can reach out to, to help advance our knowledge. And don't forget about your interdisciplinary colleagues. You know, we have just as much to offer as our PT colleagues and even as much to offer as the physicians. So don't ever be afraid to talk to them and talk to them at the same level because you deserve that. So that would be my my last piece of advice. 
Awesome. Thank you. I love that, Kelly. You're welcome. All right. Thanks again. You got it. This was awesome. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.